Why don't you pray with me and then we will open God's word. Father in heaven, I love being in your house. I love being surrounded by your children, by my brothers and sisters. It's an exciting time of the week. It's my favorite time of the week. And I know, Lord, that days like this are your favorites also. Worship and praise is being lifted before you. It's my prayer, and I'm positing the prayer of many people all across this world, that that prayer will be holy and acceptable and pleasing to you. As it comes to rest at your feet, we're praying that you will accept it. As our worship lifts before your throne, I'm praying that it will be worthy of you. And as we open your word and, and seek to learn from it, I'm praying, Father, that we'll do so with an open mind and an open heart, both receptive to what you have to teach. And as we get into this new series, I'm also asking that you'll help me to be a communicator, that you'll get me out of the way of, of these things that need to be taught and help them to come across clearly. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you got a worship folder or a bulletin when you came in this morning, would you pull that out? Some of you, I know, probably did not grab one. So let me just share with you what's on the front page. I've written just a short letter to the congregation explaining the sermon series that we're going to go into starting today. And I want to read it for you today. It doesn't take very long, just so that we're all on the same page. I've written, I know you've said it before, we all have. Someone tells you something that they've heard from a person you thought you knew pretty well. When it takes you by surprise, all you can think is, that's hard to believe. It even happens with the Bible. Someone tells you what they have read or heard, and you can't help but think, it's hard to believe we're reading from the same book. Then you find out it's true, and you're not sure what to do with that. In the early stages of every relationship, opinions are shared and thoughts are given that can take us by surprise. Remember what it was like when you first started dating? You had to get to know how they felt about everything, and I mean everything. It's no different with Jesus. We should want to know how he feels about everything. It's the key to living our lives for him. Guaranteed, sometimes those things will take you by surprise. Through October and November, I'll be teaching on some of those very issues. At first, you might be tempted to disagree. There's nothing wrong with that. I encourage you to use those feelings to dig deeper into God's word and discover for yourself what he says about these things. Share with me your thoughts and explorations. I will know, or I know it will lead to good opportunities to explore God's word together. Looking forward to these next two months. Phil. We live in a culture today where people have been watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've actually been changing it. And it's absolutely appalling, just appalling, what they've been doing. There are people that are preaching, using the pulpit, to teach things under the auspices of being God's word that are not God's word at all. Yet they claim the authority of the Bible in their teaching. There are people like Rob Bell, very popular pastor right now, leads the Mars Hill movement in Michigan. He has written a book called Love Wins. In that book, Rob puts forward that there is no hell because a loving God would never allow anyone to go to hell. That is completely false teaching. Completely false teaching. His book, Love Wins, has become a national bestseller. People are buying the book and they're buying into the teaching in it. Rob Bell is not the only preacher that has fallen to this type of thing. Turn on your TV late at night and you will find a number of preachers doing the same thing, watering down the gospel, changing what the Bible says. Or at the very least, they are skipping over some of the hard teachings of the Bible, trying to make it more appealing, more palpable for people. 
and it's an abomination. And at no point should anyone, under the guise of being a preacher or a teacher of the Bible, do that type of a thing. So for the next two months, I want us to jump into some of those issues that others are either trying to avoid or they're trying to change. We're going to start a series of sermons today called Hard to Believe. Some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks are going to be hard to believe. My promise to you is this. I'm going to use the Bible to show you what God says about these things. I'm not going to venture into the realm of my opinion. I'm not going to go into my thoughts on it. I'm just going to use the Bible. And if you find yourself in a position where you are disagreeing with what I'm teaching, please understand it's not wrong to disagree. And I would love to talk to you about how you see those issues. But I'm going to ask for you to do the same thing in return, to use the Bible to prove your side of the argument. Use the Bible to come back and visit with me so that we can really explore it together. By all means, as you leave here on Sunday, leave with questions. Leave wondering about things. And then dig deep into God's Word to find the answers. The Bible would teach in the book of 1 John that we are to test the spirits. Every spirit that is ever presented to us, whether it is taught to you by me, whether it is preached to you by somebody else, no matter who it is, you are to test the spirits. And the way you do that is by testing them against the Word of God, the will of God, and the nature of God. And you put all of those things together to see where you're at on the issue. You will more than likely find yourself in that situation at some point over the next couple of months. Stay with me all the way through it because we're going to have some great conclusions. Now, I promise you there will be some things that will stir your spirit just a little bit. That's okay. I believe it's going to be a good study. To get it started, I want to introduce you to two people that I have met this past week. The first guy's name is Arch West. For the better part of his career, Arch worked for the Frito-Lay company, and he loved it. He grew up through the, the corporation, climbed the ladder, all that good kind of stuff. When he retired, he was a vice president of the company. But his claim to fame began back in 1961. He was on vacation with his family in the San Diego area. While they were walking along the beach, maybe it was a boardwalk there, I don't know exactly where it was, they found a snack shack that Arch walked up to. And he ordered something that he had never seen before, a fried tortilla. He thought it was wonderful. Went back several times, ordered fried tortillas again. Decided that when he got back, he was going to go to the bigwigs of the Frito-Lay Corporation and tell them about what he had experienced. He was that excited about it. When he got home, that's exactly what he did. He went to the, the research and development part of Frito-Lay, told them what he had experienced. He went to the people that were above him in the corporation, told them what he had experienced. Fried tortillas, greatest thing ever happened. They said, you are completely nuts. He was trying to convince them that they needed to start marketing fried tortillas. They said, there's no way we're going to do that. Nobody would want them. Now, he was a fairly tenacious individual, so Arch decided to do his own market research. He went out on the streets with fried tortillas. He found out that people loved them. He collected a lot of information that he took back to the corporation and said, people really love fried tortilla chips. We need to do this. They decided they would. They would take a gamble with him. And Arch, along with the Frito-Lay Corporation, launched a line of potato chips that we all know as Doritos. I love Arch. Don't you? He was a visionary. I, I like it a lot. Arch passed away this last week. He was 91 years old. When he died, he was cremated. Those were his wishes, and his family carried out his wishes. 
they decided that they would hold a private memorial service for Arch, and then later they would bury his ashes. They were already in the urn. This is their plan. When the time comes, they're going to dig the hole to place the urn in. The family will gather around the hole after the urn is placed in it and before they put the dirt back. You know what they're going to do? They're going to throw Doritos in on top of it. That's his legacy. Isn't that, isn't that funny? They're just going to fill the hole up with Doritos and then they're going to throw some dirt in on top of it and Arch is going to be buried beneath his legacy and buried in the dirt. Now, I read that story, it makes me smile and then there's a part of me that thinks that's kind of hard to believe. It seems a little bit irreverent to me that they're going to throw Doritos in on top of his urn, but it's just kind of hard to believe. Then I met somebody else. His story is quite a bit different. His name is Yosef Nardakani. He is a preacher in the nation of Iran. And he is a preacher in a Christian church, evangelical church. Not much different than ours. Not much different in size, not much different in doctrine, not much different in teaching. Their mission, their goal is the Great Commission, to share the gospel with everyone around them. And apparently, Yosef has been very successful at it. In 2009, his oldest son, and if I remember right, he has six children. His oldest son went to school and was forced to read from the Koran. Now remember, he lives in the nation of Iran. Yosef is a Christian, and he did not believe that that was right. So he went to the school board in Iran, and he complained about it. He was arrested, thrown into jail. He was then taken to trial and convicted of the crime of apostasy. When he was sentenced, this was the sentence. He would die. He would be executed. The government of Iran has come back to Yosef, and they have offered him the opportunity to have that death sentence lifted off of him if he would recant of his Christianity. Now, Yosef understands that to recant means to repent. He also understands that to repent means to turn around or to turn back. So he said to them, what am I supposed to recant of? They said, you are supposed to recant of your Christianity. He said, and return to what? The blasphemy that was my life before Christ? They said, no, you are to return to the religion of your fathers. You're to return to Islam. Yosef said, I cannot and I will not even with the sentence of death hanging over his head. Yosef's wife had been arrested as well. She has been released from prison. From June 2010 to December of 2010 in the nation of Iran, over 200 people were arrested for their faith in Christ. 50 of them are still incarcerated and they all have the death sentence hanging over them. They're all supposed to die. Yosef's is supposed to be carried out this week. There has been an international outcry over this whole thing because the Iranian penal code does not have anything in it about the crime of apostasy. Yet Yosef is still supposed to die this week. As people have risen up and gotten involved in this, groups like Amnesty International have said, this is totally wrong, you cannot do this. There is a strong possibility that he will not die, but he will remain in prison until such a time that he is willing to repent of his faith and return to the faith of his fathers, return to Islam. Isn't that hard to believe? It really is. For me, it is. We live in the United States of America where our freedom of religion is protected. You probably do not know, personally, you do not know anyone who has had their life put in jeopardy or have lost their lives because of their faith. 
A few of you might have met missionaries through the years that have told stories like this. You might even be aware of a missionary or two that has served somewhere overseas that has lost their life because of Christianity. But personally, within your life, more than likely, you do not know of anybody that has. It's hard to believe. You can read stories in the Bible about people that were killed because of Christianity, or you can purchase books like Fox's Book of Martyrs and read unbelievable stories about those that have died because of Jesus Christ, but it still doesn't really touch your life because of where we live. It's hard to believe that people still have to fight against this, but they do. And it's not just in Iran. It's all through the Mideast. It happens in Africa. It happens in South America. It happens very close to us. And it shouldn't be hard to believe for us because the Bible actually says that's the way it's supposed to be. We happen to live in a protected bubble, but that's the way it's supposed to be. Let me show you what the Bible says about this. Go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. First book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now go from chapter 10 over to chapter 16. Same book of the Bible, Matthew. Chapter 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Two times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus drives this point home. Obviously, it was important enough for him to say once and then to say it again. As a parent, I know when something is really important, I'm going to drive the point home. I'm not just going to say it once. I'm going to say it multiple times. That's what Jesus has done with this concept. It is possible that at some point you will be asked to give up your life for the name of Jesus Christ. It happens everywhere. Though it's hard to believe for us, it happens everywhere. That is part of the cost of discipleship. Really hard for us to understand that, though. Really difficult for us to believe. Because there are teachers, there are preachers that have changed the gospel. They have turned it into this concept that says that God is just waiting to bless you. God wants to give you everything that you want. We have removed passages like this from the teaching of the Bible. And we've said that if you become a Christian, you don't have to worry about anything anymore. If you become a Christian, God will give you whatever you want. If you become a Christian, all of your worries will be taken care of. If you become a Christian, it will be smooth sailing. And folks, that is not what the Bible teaches. Yet Paul would say to Timothy, a time was coming when this very thing would begin to happen. Go with me to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when, when, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. 
Some of those myths that Paul is talking about are the ones that are circulating around our world today. Myths like we just talked about. Myths like what Rob Bell would say, that there is no hell. That is not the teaching of the Bible. And it has never been the call of any preacher or teacher to change the teaching of the Bible, but rather to preach it and to teach it exactly as it is, even if it is difficult. We are living in the times that the Apostle Paul was talking about. They are difficult times. They are hard times. People are actually losing their lives for Christ, while on the other side of the globe, people are changing the gospel, trying to make it more appealing. And that's been going on for a long time. For the last 30, 40, 50 years, that's been the movement of the church to begin preaching this type of gospel that says God will submit His will to ours. God's desires are really wrapped up within our desires. He wants to know what we want. So if we'll simply go back and share those things with Him, then God will, in all of His faithfulness, give us whatever we want. That is not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is actually the teaching of surrender. It is the teaching that says God's will will become our will. His desires will become our desires. We will be transformed to look like Him, not the other way around. That's the teaching of the Bible. And in order for that type of surrender to happen, sometimes difficult things take place in our life. Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 10 again. This time we'll start in verse 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. These are Jesus' words. If you're reading from a red-letter edition of the Bible, these words are in red. Do not suppose, verse 34, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. If Jesus was here preaching right now and he was going to offer an invitation at the end of that message, there's his invitation. Doesn't sound very appealing, does it? It really doesn't. At first glance, you hear that, that that Jesus has come not to bring peace but a sword and he's going to turn family members against one another. The people that have been really close to you may not understand you anymore. That is the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you become a Christian, there's a very real possibility that folks that have been very significant in your life will want nothing to do with you anymore. Parents will be turned against children. Children against parents. Mother-in-laws against their daughter-in-laws and so on. And friends will turn against friends because of Jesus Christ. For a number of you, you know exactly what that's like. When you became a Christian, you had people that were very close to you that said, you have completely left the reservation. What has happened to you? What has happened in your mindset? Why are you like this? Who got a hold of you? Who led you astray? You understand the teaching of this. I saw it in a very first-hand way this past spring. A fellow was locked up in our county jail, and I got a phone call asking me to come down and visit with him, and, and I did. And he shared with me why he was there, and that happens on a fairly regular basis. Other people are called into the same situation. In the process of our conversations... He determined that Jesus was the only hope there was for him. He had to address some big issues in his life. One of the biggest was a a wrestling match that he's had for a long time with alcohol. So when he became a Christian, he decided that he was going to leave alcohol behind. He was never going to take another drink. Then he got out of jail while he was waiting to serve his sentence. He honored his commitment, the commitment that he made while he was in prison. He was in church. He had given his life to Christ. 
he had walked away from alcohol and he wanted nothing more to do with it. Some friends of his would call and say that they wanted to come by and visit with him. And they would say, and I'll bring a case. He'd say, I'd love for you to come visit, but don't bring the case because I'm not drinking anymore. Leave the beer at home, but please come and visit. Every one of them, and there were a number of them, said, all right, I'll do it. I'll be there. Do you know how many came? Not one. He began to understand this passage. They had turned against him. They were no longer his friends because their relationship was based and built on beer. That was it. When he became a Christian, they didn't understand him saying, I got to leave that behind because the alcohol had too much control in my life, so I'm leaving that behind and I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. They didn't want anything to do with him. It happens in all kinds of different situations. When we hold on to the truth that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, strong chance, strong possibility that some people are not going to want to be around you. I turned 43 years old in August. I'm getting old. And I know. Some of you are thinking, he has no idea what he's talking about. In my old age, I've come to the conclusion that I'm also somewhat old-fashioned. And my children would probably tell you that very thing. Yeah, Dad, that's a revelation to you. Yeah, you're old-fashioned. <clears throat> Biblically, I've also come to that same conclusion. As we live in a, a world and a society and a culture that is changing the Word of God, I cannot see that it can be changed. And I'm going to hold on to the old-fashioned ideas that are recorded there. This past week, week, thinking about those things, I just sat down and started writing some of the things that I believe that might be considered somewhat old-fashioned. Let me share them with you. Number one, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Number two, the church should be the voice of the unborn. Number three, men should be the spiritual leaders of their homes. Number four, if God says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Number five, freedom through forgiveness is for everyone. Six, repentance is the key to true freedom. Seven, God is still calling people to a life-changing relationship with Him that does oftentimes require a life change. Number eight, God does not have many names. There is only one name for the true God. Number nine, children should honor their parents. Number ten, parents should raise their kids to fear the Lord. Number eleven, I just threw this in for the parents. Parents should raise their kids with a little bit of fear of mom and dad as well. Number 12, there is a heaven that waits for those that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Number 13, there is a hell for those that don't. 14, heaven is remarkable. 15, hell is not just the absence of life, it is eternal punishment. 16, the Bible is truth for life and is the inspired word of God. 17, Christianity is not easy. 18, nor is it for the faint of heart. 19, but for those that find life through Christ, they will never be sorry they did. Number 20. And lastly, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him. If those are old-fashioned, outdated ideas, that's the message that I believe is truth. And that's the message that I believe the church has a responsibility to preach. Some of those things are hard some of those things are difficult for people to accept, and there are many others. But they are the truth of the Bible. They are the truth of what Jesus taught. We're not to skip over them. We're not to change them. We are to make sure that they are out there for everyone. And if we really want to know who Jesus Christ is, then we have to know even those types of things, no matter how difficult they are. We're going to be looking at that for the next two months. But I want you to understand that when you find it,
you are finding a treasure beyond anything else. And that's exactly what Jesus would call it. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew again? This time we're going to go to chapter 13, verse 44. Three verses, two illustrations. This is how Jesus describes a relationship with him. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Two illustrations. Jesus says in the first one that the kingdom of God is like a man who is just out walking around and he discovers in a field a great treasure. And he determines that he wants that treasure for himself, so he buries it, then goes and sells everything that he has that he might buy the field, in essence, that he might buy that treasure, that it might become his. And he is willing to give up everything that he has in order to get that treasure. It's that old concept of, would you spend $1,000 to get a million? That's exactly the way this illustration plays out. I'll get rid of everything that I have that I might have the treasure that is the kingdom of God. Even when it sounds difficult, I will do whatever I have to do in order to get that. Then he goes on and uses this other illustration of the pearl of great price. Man finds a pearl, same story. He's going to get rid of everything that he has that he might get a hold of that pearl. Treasure hunters understand that. Bargain hunters understand that type of a concept. People that have ever invested everything that they have to make something work understand that. This past week in the newspapers, there was an article about a a treasure that's been found in the deepest parts of the ocean. Here's the story. In 1941, the SS Garasopa was sailing with an armada of ships towards Great Britain. The Garasopa was a British ship. Everything was going great with the armada until one of their engines in the Garasopa went down and they had to turn away from all of the rest of the ships, and they were headed for the coast of Spain. On their way there, they were being tracked by a German U-boat, and that German sub sunk them in 15,000 feet of water. 15,000 feet of water, they went down. 85 people died, one person survived. 85 people died. The ship was carrying quite a cargo. They had pig iron with them, they had tea because they were a British ship, And then they had silver, and no small amount of silver. The estimation is they had 600,000 pounds of silver, and it sank 15,000 feet of water. Well, a lot of different underwater treasure hunters have been looking for the Garasopa. Finally, it was discovered by a group out of Florida called Marine Underwater Expeditions. The title of the company is Odyssey. Odyssey Marine Underwater Expeditions. They found it in 15,000 feet of water. They knew what was on board, 600,000 pounds of gold. They went back to the British government, told them that they had found it, and then they brokered a deal to recover it. The government told them that they could have 80% of anything that they recovered. It was in 15,000 feet of water. They didn't believe they were going to get anything. They said the way the ship went down, the cargo holds are fully exposed, and they can get their robotic subs or whatever it is that they use in to bring the cargo back out. And in the spring, they're going to start lifting all of that silver. They're not interested in the iron. They're not interested in the tea. They want 600,000 pounds of silver because that silver's estimated value 
is $212 million. $212 million. The Odyssey Corporation is going to do whatever they have to to get it because that is the largest underwater recovery of any treasure recorded to date. Not only do they want to set the record, but they want $212 million. They'll do whatever it takes, whatever they have to. So they're going after it, and they'll probably be successful. It's that same kind of concept that Jesus is teaching in regard to the kingdom of God. You do whatever it takes that you might be a Christian. You do whatever it takes that you might grow in your relationship with the Lord because the pearl of great price, the pearl of great price is the grace of God that came through Jesus Christ. You are not deserving of it. I am not deserving of it. But God in His infinite goodness extended that grace to us that we might experience eternal life. That's the pearl of great price. I'll do whatever it takes. Even if the gospel teaches that God's not going to submit to my will, but I have to submit to His. If that's the teaching of the Bible, I'm willing to do it because if that pearl is out there, I want it. Listen to what the book of Romans says about this concept of submission. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the submission, surrender that the Bible teaches. Fun part about it is every time we do, every time we're involved in that, it is an act of worship, holy and pleasing to God. And it's what He longs for. And it changes you from the inside out. It's part of this transforming process. But in order to be transformed, it is necessary for us to look at some of the hard-to-believe things of the Bible that that transformation can really happen. So that like Yosef Nardakani, the time ever came that somebody would tell us that we could live if we would simply repent of Christ, turn and go the other way, you would, like Yosef, say, I cannot and I will not. I am willing to die for him if that's what's necessary because Jesus died for me. That's hard to believe concept of the Bible, but it's what we have to understand. And Jesus said the time would come when people would face that. We're there today. People are facing it. And they have been since the time of Christ. It's never stopped. That teaching is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. We've just started to skip over it. There's an author right now that has referred to what's going on within modern-day Christianity as light Christianity. He says that it is less filling and less satisfying. Well, we're not going to be looking at light Christianity these next two months. We're going to look at some things that are pretty hard to believe. I hope you'll stay with me through it. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Well, Father in heaven, these are good teachings, things that I am glad are contained in the Bible. Again, I'm praying that you open our eyes, that we might see them for what they really are. I know in the process, some people will see you in a a way that they never have. Would you open their heart to be able to receive you for who you are? Would you help all of us do that? And Father, when we come to times like this in the service, invitation times, I'm praying that your spirit will be way ahead of us, stirring everyone's heart, that we might respond where we need to. 
that we might be changed if necessary, that our thinking might conform to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can do that. If you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with the church, you can do that. If you'd like to pray with somebody about things that are going on in your life, you can do that. That's available to you right now during this time of the service. We call it the invitation and it's extended to you. All you have to do is respond. Go over to this door to my right, your left. Somebody will be there and meet you and they'll make sure your needs are met. For the rest, sing loud. Help us extend this invitation.